listeners, and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Ozano, and together with a selection of co-hosts from around the world, we discuss the ways in which people and communities connect with research and science. We hear from patients and survivors, health workers, policymakers, scientists, and implementing research organizations about the methods and approaches that they apply to co-produce knowledge to address current global health challenges. Thank you for listening, and on to this week's episode. You are in for a great treat today as we talk to Dr. Stephen Watiti. We are reversing connecting citizens to science and connecting scientists to citizens by hearing Dr. Stephen Watiti's story from Uganda about his advocacy work and his lived experience of HIV, TB and cancer. Stephen is a medical doctor and he will be talking to us about his journey from acquiring HIV in 1985 to becoming a journalist, an advocate and an author. But before we begin, I am here with Rona. Rona Majumbi, how are you today? Kim, I'm very well, and it's great to be here again. And to our listeners, good day, wherever you're listening in from. Greetings from a chilly Blantyre. My name is Rona Mijumbi, a senior lecturer of public policy at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. I'm so excited to join today's episode because as I grew up and went through my medical training and began to practice in Uganda, our guest today featured several times. So it's a pleasure to be speaking with him today. Following my medical training, I did training in epidemiology and biostatistics, international public health, and later a doctorate in health policy, all of which I'll be drawing on today to make sense of our conversation with Stephen. I really look forward to this, Kim. <laughs> Me too. So Stephen, we are very welcome and very excited to hear from you. And uh, Rona, especially as she's, she's growing up with your voice and your influence, which I'm sure has been heard by everyone. But before we start, we just want to know a bit more about you. Who are you? Uh, tell us a bit about yourself, your interests, your dislikes, where you are, etc. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, because I'm coming to you from Kampala. It's a bit cloudy today and um, a bit chilly. It's been a bit of storm and a lot, quite a number of lives have been lost in Uganda because of uh, mudslides. Mm. People in my home district in, in the East actually. Mm -hmm. I am a, a Ugandan um, old man, if you, as you can see. And here, if, if, you, if you are seeing, or you can hear um, uh, a medical Doctor by training, I trained in Uganda uh, from 1979 up to 84 when I graduated as a doctor, went and worked. And uh, so I've been practicing medicine for over 35 years. Now I'm more in retirement, but um, so I'm, I'm married, I'm married to Naume. We have grown up children. And uh, our last born actually is, 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 is my biological daughter who is currently also uh, married and he lives in the US. And I've just got a grandson who turns two today. A namesake mm -hmm. called Malakai Watiti Makoba. So I'm a very happy guy today, really. And I'm so happy to be talking to you, Kim. And Rona, whose face actually is not very new, uh, although <laughs> a lot of time has passed in between. So I'm extra excited today to be talking to friends. I'm talking about something that is near my heart, really. Thank you very much. I think uh, the reason we decided to talk to you again after our, our last episode is because you really have a story to tell. 
So now that we know a bit about you, you're clearly a, a, a family man who cares a lot about his children and grandchildren. Let's go way back to junior doctor days. Tell us a little bit about what happened during those days. Well, I started off working as a junior doctor in a hospital near Kampala called Rubaga uh, Hospital. It's a mission hospital. I think Rona knows it. It's one of the mission hospitals that I started working in, and that was back in 1984. And then, of course, we had heard about this disease. It was called gay-related immunodeficiency syndrome. When we, towards the end of our training, but I knew nothing, and nobody could have been failed during that time if you'd not answer a question on gay-related immunodeficiency syndrome. But as I started practicing, we started seeing people who were not behaving the normal way, go and do a cesarean section, for example. Normally expect a lady to recover quickly, but they don't mm -hmm. recover. They get sepsis, eventually they die. I remember such a patient, and then the child also becomes sick, child dies. A few months later, the husband also comes and he's also sick, very sick with cancer, with oral thrush, and they die. So that's when we started noticing around 1984, 85. But of course, um, really one wouldn't have bothered so much. We were treating many malaria, tropical diseases like typhoid and others. Little did I know that actually myself had got infected around that same time, maybe around 86, 85. Most likely 86 or 87 there. Because that's when I developed um, what I now know are the signs of uh, HIV infection. I developed what they call persistent generalized lymphadenopathy. This is swelling of the lymph nodes, which I saw around my neck. I also started losing you know, my normal energy to, 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 to do work. <clears throat> I got repeated sinusitis, clear signs of, of HIV infection, but we didn't know anything. I just got married at that time and really uh, we're looking forward to living uh, a normal life. In 1986, we got our firstborn. This was a boy who unfortunately later on we discovered he had sickle cell anemia and died after about three and a half years. Sorry. And before he died, I had we had got a second born who is now the girl I've told you about who is now in the US. But anyway, the problem started when my wife and I thought we would do, have a third bond because I wanted to go back to medical school. I loved doing surgery so much. My dream was become a professor of surgery. And I started working with the renowned professors in our country. Most of them have now died, but they were all men anyway, because I wanted to learn surgery. Later on, uh, again, to cut the wrong story short, is when around 88, I developed TB. Now that was the first time I had TB, but we we're seeing a lot of TB cases in the clinic. So I thought this was due to overexposure. And many other colleagues actually had got TB. So I got treated, but around the same time I got herpes zoster. Then this is when I went to see a colleague and said, ah, but this is becoming a bit uh, too much. Suggested I do an HIV test, which I actually was accepted to do because if a colleague suggests that, when I went back home to tell my wife I had done HIV test, you had said, why did you do an HIV test? What would you suspect you might be sick? And to avoid the quarrels at home, I did not go back for that, <laughs> for those results. Again, fast forward around 1993, we decided to have another baby. That is when problems came. My wife became sickly and to cut a long story short, she did not make it. 
around the same time before she, she died, I developed myself septicemia. Septicemia is infection of the blood. It's now a, a, a sign of what they call advanced HIV disease. So that is how my story is. I lost my wife in 94, left me with a four-year-old child. And I knew I was going to die because there was no, no treatment. I'd already just survived, just, just survived septicemia. That was now 94. I am a, a, a Christian and I believe in prayer. So I prayed. I prayed that God gives me five years. Five years because I knew my daughter who was four then, maybe I would have made plans. And somehow it worked. I never became sick, although I was not as strong. I got this lost weight, but I would attribute that maybe to virtue uh, work. And I had already lost my wife. So I was not well. And I knew I was positive, you know, but there was no treatment. So until 99, that's when again, I developed TB again. And I've suffered. that was the fourth time this was what's called MDR TB, malt drug resistant TB. I was struggling with that. Then I discovered I had sores uh, in my mouth when I checked the lesions. When they checked, they were, told me I had coma, a cancer which is common in terminal AIDS. So I was now battling two bad diseases, TB, MDR TB, and there was no treatment in Uganda. And I was having this cancer because this is the end game now. So I put my daughter in a boarding school and waited. That was 99. And indeed, problems came because at the same time, I developed cryptococcal meningitis. That's infection of the surroundings of the brain. So I had TB, I had cancer, I had meningitis. So I was taken back to Mulago to die on the sixth floor. The hospital is the place where I was supposed to be. And this was ironic because when I joined the medical school in 1979, 80, the, the theme for WHO was health for all by the year 2000. Now the year 2000 found me dying with TB, with cancer, with meningitis. Somehow, <laughs> when I tell the story, sometimes I have to remind myself I didn't die, that's why I'm here. Because it is so interesting, because I've never seen somebody with this disease recover and have good quality of life. But recover, I did slowly. But what helped me is that around that same time, a colleague of mine, who is now a professor, had been, I think, to either Barcelona or one of those early AIDS, uh, international AIDS society conferences, and came with a box of leftover IRVs, real sample drugs. So he put together, I remember he put me on combination of three of them. One of them was called Nelfinavil. I had to swallow about three tablets of Nelfinavil every eight hours after eating something. Then he put me on another one called Stavudin, which I had to take in the morning and in the evening. Then he put me on another called Didanosine. Now Didanosine, I had to chew it or crush it and put it in water and swallow it on an empty stomach. It was so confusing. I had to eat something, then swallow in the Finaville. I had to take the, stab, uh, the dance and on an empty stomach. And I was on, on, on an injection daily, uh, plus uh, the four tablets of uh, TB medicine. There were bad side effects of those drugs. I remember having what they call lactic acidosis. You feel like you're passing out. Muscle pain, like somebody has sat on you and beaten you. Sometimes I would do see the medicine and vomit. But I had that fighting spirit in me because I did not want to die and leave my daughter. Sometimes I find it, but I had to, sometimes you would vomit this medicine because it was very expensive. 
pick it up, wash it, and actually rinse it and swallow it again. Because it was costing about $500 a month. But what really made me real not to fight is like, I didn't want to die and leave my daughter. Hmm. It was only four, five years then. Okay, now she was about 14. Anyway, so that is it. So I eventually recovered, improved a bit, and went back to, to work. And many of the patients I was seeing, clearly they had HIV and AIDS, but they didn't want to be told that. Even, even try it on their paper. They said, I know I have it, but don't write it on my medical form. So that is when I decided that, look, this is not good. I remember my first patient was a lecturer at university. She came and she told me she had lost her husband, left her with a 13-year-old daughter. Now this touched me because I had a 13-year-old daughter, I'd lost my wife. So I took her side and said, look, do you know that some people are selling these medicines and they are not doing very badly? And she said, ah, ah, I've checked on the internet and it, it, many people are dying because of this medicine. The side effects are terrible. And I agreed because I'd gone through the side effects. But I, but I said, but I know some who are not. I said, said, no. Anyway, to convince her, I told her that I am selling this medicine. Now this lady was so confused, said, ah, I thought you were going to help me now you are dying like me. Actually, she stormed out of the clinic. I was so embarrassed. I felt so frustrated. I felt so unprofessional. Luckily for me, she called back and apologized and said, what were you saying? So I repeated. <laughs> she went and started taking care of his. And now she's there. She's, she hasn't died. And she's still there. So Kim and Rona, that is briefly my story. From then, I actually wanted to resign and go to Botswana because that was what I thought they were the epicenter of HIV. I wanted to go to somewhere, because in Uganda, when I was talking, people were not very happy with me. They were so I wanted to go to a place where people don't know me, but I thought of my mother. I still have my mother, she's now 90. My mother had been there for me when I was sick. I did not want to go and live high in Uganda. So I decided not to go. So that's why I went to Mild May, where Rona most likely saw me when I was practicing. So it's a long story, but when I went to Maldome, it was another beginning. People were so stigmatized. And some of my colleagues were not very happy with me because of bearing myself in front of patients. But I said, look, this disease is so dishumanizing. You, why don't I share my personal experience? But tell you the truth is that I think I helped myself more than I helped people. By telling people that, look, you need to have a positive attitude. You need to focus on you, your children because, uh, for example, you have a child, focus on something. For example, you have a career. You, what do you want to do in life? I focused. I told them for me, I'm looking at my daughter. She's in now, she's in, in secondary school. I want, her, I want to be at her wedding. I want to be at her graduation. So those are the things I kept telling people. And as I, as I was telling them, so like, like I was talking to myself every day, I thank God I did. What's now? Uh, I have lived with this disease for over 35 years, been on ARVs since 2000, and I'm not sick. I'm now aging. I'm now almost 70. Next year, I will turn 70 on my next birthday. I remarried. Uh, this week is going to be my 70th, 17th wedding anniversary. Married now, and we're happy. So that is it. That is it. It's a hard thing to follow. I, 
I don't even know where to begin. It's a, it's it's such a, an amazing story, and I can imagine you get this response quite quite often. It is, it is, and uh, sometimes emotional. But on the other hand, I'm I'm glad. I'm glad I followed my gut feeling. I talk to people every day now. Everybody, somebody calls me. Some of them call me, uh, send me WhatsApp. They say I, they don't want me to know them, but they want help. Some of them, when they hear I have remarried, they want to marry, others want to have children. So they ask me questions. Some of them I don't know. So I call people, say, what do I do? So sometimes I help, sometimes I can't help. At times I, I just say, but when you want to talk, you talk to me. Because I know loneliness is one of the, those challenges, of, especially people who have lost their partners and can't talk to any person. They can't tell them what they are feeling in, the, in their hearts. So that's that, that's what I do now. I don't know for how long I have, but for as long as I still do live, I talk. I I try to write most of the time, and I I have written a book this called Conquering HIV, my personal experience of living with HIV. I, I started writing this book when I noticed I was not going to be well. I was writing a journal for my daughter. I need to write publish. It's later on when I improved that I published this. Now I'm working on another one, which I hope will on aging, because I see this is going to be an issue. Trying to some of the challenges I'm getting as I age. Uh, forgetfulness is one of them. Sometimes I forget, and it's, and and, and and sometimes uh, I forget I've swallowed medicine because I'm not sick. So I have to. That's what I have to find a way of how to I make sure that I swallow medicine every day at the same time, uh, without missing. So it's not easy, and I like gardening. So now, now I realize I don't have enough, as much uh, time to spend with my plants as much as I would have wanted to. So those are some of the things that I'm, I'm doing. Hopefully, God willing, next year around May I should publish another one on aging with HIV. I think. It's great to hear that those books have, have been produced and that people reach out to you all the time. In terms of your own resilience and, and balancing life, you said you're very happy and it's, it's great to hear that. How are you able to balance the need to help others against having that time and that personal space as well? Hey, the truth, I think sometimes I, oh, I overdo it. and But I'm lucky I am married to a caring wife who knows my passion, but also knows I, I, I'm, I'm old and I need to rest. I need to eat healthy. I need to, and sometimes, especially during the last lockdown during COVID, and that's the story I've been writing this morning, I overdid it and even got COVID during the process because I was going out. Mm -hmm. it, it took my wife to say, but look, you are over 60 and we have, by then we were living with her mom who, was, who passed away about a year ago, she was at 92 also. So you, you are risking bringing COVID for this old woman and myself, mm -hmm. because we're all over 60. And indeed I did get COVID, but again, by God's grace, I survived without treatment. <laughs> I was not immunized. There was no care in Uganda, as you can imagine, we, we, in a country of over 40 million, we had only, I think over 50, maybe not even 50 intensive care beds. So we lost colleagues. But I, I survived. So sometimes I, I think overdo it, but luckily I have learned to rest more. 
I still work, but I work from home. I rest most of the time. Like now, during the after lunch, when she called me, I was going to have uh, after lunch. I was going to have a nap, <sighs> which which I enjoy so much. So I, I balancing is not easy, and some people can even take advantage. Sometimes I have to go and collect medicine for people. I've learned now to do what I can, and some things which I can't to leave, make sure to know that I leave the the problems I'm here, and I need to care for myself as much as what. Uh, before I can care for others, I need to care about myself. I think already I survived, um, as you've said that several times here. I think this might be the title for the podcast. Um, <laughs> I do have other questions, but Rona, I'm sure you do too. So, so let me give you that space. I do have lots of burning ones, Kim. <laughs> and oh my God. I've had this story before, but each time I hear it, it's really new. A story of resilience, faith, bravery, you know, name it. And um, I'm just curious. I know, uh, Stephen, you've you've connected, you know, with science and and research and even done some work, you know, in journalism. Um, How have you connected with science or research related to TB, HIV or cancer? or told your story in relation to this? And how has this been received? Um, I think the, the biggest pro- problem was the issue, the, the issue of um, balancing. Because, okay, I'm not a hardcore scientist anyway, but I'm a student and I understand, and I'm not a researcher, I've not done even any postgraduate studies to do anything. Even journalism, which you Kim mentioned, I'm not a journalist, but I write. So what I did was to try and, um, because I know science helps us to, should be able to explain things, explain things, for example, the myth of HIV killing young people, uh, doctors, engineers. But then my being able to understand how HIV affects the body and being able to explain this first, understand it, and then be able to explain it. In simple terms, sometimes using local languages. And people say, ah, I think that's where I have been able to connect with people. In fact, when I talk, of course, I'm a bit, too, I'm a bit simplistic, but when I talk to, okay, people of your, people have done research and PhD students, these are not normal people. They also can understand that actually science should be able to make things easier for people. But for example, with cancer, I'm now actually struggling to try and ensure that people understand that cancer is also curable, mainly, especially if it is found early. And to know that cancer, for example, runs through families, something that we have not seen in, you know what? In Africa, we know that and it could be regarded as a curse that your mother's mother got a breast cancer and was cut off, then the daughter also gets a breast cancer. Now, being able to explain that this is actually normal, that scientifically this is this can so which means that if your mom had breast cancer, it does not you don't have to wait, you can go and check, checking regularly. I think that's how I've managed to sort of bridging the gap between science and what I would call normal life. Being able to talk to people who, the normal people, as they call it, the street person, and they say, ah, being able to explain to my mother in my mother tongue, and he said, okay, and she can give the same, say the same thing, it's like this, and he says exactly, but say using different words. 
I think that's what we need to do with all diseases. We had the same problem with COVID. The fact it was so mysterious and killing people and we became so scared. And I remember offering that maybe we need to do what we have done with the child, demystifying this disease. But of course, new things, it takes long. So in a way, being able to help people understand disease, what uh, I think they, this is called the uh, health literacy, being able to empower people with the functional knowledge so that they can be able to take uh, decisions concerning their health and that of others. I think this is it. It sounds really, really helpful. And, and Kim and I, you know, wouldn't agree anymore how, how important it is to be able to communicate a lot of this you know, very mystical, complex, you know, science for it to be acted on. And you've done very well. I'm also very impressed that you you did not sit and wallow in self-pity, but actually used all this experience to try and help others. And so in this journey of, of communicating your experience, what have you learned? What are some of those lessons you would say about communicating your experience? I th- what I've learned is, uh, one, People, nobody wants to die. Of course, we know everybody is going to die. But nobody wants to die. So when, we, for example, when a, you give a patient medicine and explain to them solo one in the morning, one in the evening, for six months or three months, then come back. And then they come back and they have not followed that. It, 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 sometimes it, it, people think this is, you are, people are being stubborn, people are being foolish. But what I've learned is that in real life, things that, some things that count cannot be counted. So people understand what you have said, but in real life, the things don't work that way. I notice, for example, that when people have stigma, this issue of you feeling embarrassed, that, for example, the, in Uganda here, people go for days to go for funeral rites, where people live communal and so on. And they are not sick. So somebody will not swallow medicine during that time because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense uh, that somebody is not sick and is following medicine. So how do I now explain? I told them that, look, this is going to help you the way food helps you. You don't wait until you are really famished, then you eat food. You eat food, because you have developed a habit and the body knows that when you eat food, that's how you'll keep healthy and be able to work. So I do the same with my medicine. I don't have to be sick. I swallow my medicine on t- around the same time every day because I know it works the way, the same way food works to build my body. This one is working to block HIV from multiplying in my body. And sometimes I go for those who are able to ask, how does it do it? Then I go and explain that, for example, HIV comes in your body. I always like using, for example, the fact that it can't speak the language of the body called DNA. It speaks a language called RNA, but it comes with interpreters. And one of the interpreters is called reverse transcriptase. So what I'm trying to do is to put this medicine in to disable the interpreter so that they virus does not be able to get around in the body. And somehow people say, ah, why didn't they tell me this? Say, no, I, I also nobody told me, but I had just got it myself. Because when I looked at these drugs, how they work, they use, they work by blocking enzymes. 
And that's the, the, I call the enzymes, the interpreters, because they help the virus get around in the body. So then somebody asks, but you mean the virus doesn't want to kill me? He said, no, I don't think the, the aim of the virus to kill you. The aim is for it to look for a place where it produces baby viruses. But in the process, it kills you. The aim is not to kill you. So you, you are also trying to prevent it having its babies in your body. In your body. But it's not as easy as that. Um, some of these, actually, I get these scenarios from the patient themselves who, who try to propose how, how it works. I said, ah, OK, not like that, but like the other one really impressed with the innovation in communication, which is so dependent on a deep understanding of the condition, but also being able to contextualize it. What do you think is actually needed from scientists or researchers to support more involvement of people who have lived experience and therefore should be sharing their stories, should be involved in the pathways that, that lead to medical innovation? How can researchers pull these people into the process? Well, it's a bit of challenging, but of course, as somebody, I think somebody called me that I'm not a normal patient, and I agree I'm not a normal patient, uh, but really any person can understand if you explain, if you took time to explain. It's, it's, I think it's called empathy. You need to put yourself in their shoes. It's like getting from your chair and say, can you stand up and I sit where you are and you can sit where I am, and then we see. With time, you are able to connect, connect, and be able to explain until somebody has understood. I think the issue of the and, and actually HIV is probably the, the most researched disease of all in the history of medicine. A lot has been done. A lot of papers are being published. And I sometimes I go with this, you can understand it. There are some amount they say, but why can't we come back home and do this and help? Why are we still having? so many babies infected with HIV in Uganda. Why are 50 people dying of this disease every day? And me, who should have died 20 years ago, I'm here and I'm not dying. We need to do that. So the most important thing I think is getting people who can be listened to. And that's where I come in. It's the truth is that if we went and I talked and I started with my story, People who listen to me more than you who first introduced, and I'm saying this with all due respect, first say I have a PhD in this, which is okay, and the PhD is, but then you start to say, okay, they, they, mm -hmm. they listen to you and you can talk very well. I say, ah, so-and-so's daughter can talk well. Whereas me, when I start by saying, look, I had TB, I had cancer, and I was helped this way. I even sometimes even share the mistakes I made. And someone says, ah, you did the same. Because sometimes we, with communication, people want to communicate only good things. It's okay for me. And then when you read my book, you find that I've shared even some of the mistakes I made, mistakes made by people. Because the people now realize you are a normal person. A normal person makes mistakes. And be able to encourage. And I sometimes switch, 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 what, switch gears and tell them, look, I'm a person of faith. Because many people in Uganda are people of faith. And I said, look, but the two are not mutually exclusive. I pray as if I'm not following medicine, but I swallow medicine as if I'm not praying. So how do you do that? I said, no, 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 this is what I've done. And you find somebody who doesn't ask a question when you have given the, the phone, they call you at night, say, doctor, I listened to you. I think you, you really connected with me. And then he said, but do you know me? I said, no, I don't know you. This is the way you are talking as if you are talking about me. I said, no, no, I don't know you. I was just talking about myself. 
mixed with experience of other people because sometimes it's not all my experience but they mix with experience of many of my patients for whom I really am grateful but they share so many of their stories so much so that they become like my stories but this is what we need to do what I'm saying is we need to be able to inspire people to listen to us so we need people who are credible when you talk they say ah, okay I can listen to that one because of this. But we also need people who are faithful, being able to, to do it consistently, but also available because availability is as important as being faithful to do it and being able to train them so that they can understand these very complex concepts as you have as you described them. Science is quite complex, but like the body takes a very complex molecule, digests it until it is absorbed by the body in, in simple form. So what I'm trying to do is bring this complex thing into simple form molecules so that people can be able to, to use it and be able to improve. I, 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 at the moment I'm writing, one of the talk, talk, topics I'm writing about is death, which is quite complex. But, and yet everybody dies, but all of us fear death. So how do we explain so that people don't, for some people who have died of HIV actually have died earlier than they should have, mainly because of the, fear of death, that paralyzes them and they don't do anything. So somebody says, ah, I don't want to swallow the medicine. I'm already dead. I've written it on my will. And they die. I've seen people like that. Tell them, no, writing a will is okay. But you don't have to die yet. First of all, you don't know how many days you have. So you just do the best you can and, and look after your children. And that's why I like focusing on children. Say, many of them say, I'm ready to die. But, say, but my child say, no, uh-huh, now you don't have to die and leave your child. You can, you can actually live. You are 40, the child is just one year. You can live another 20 years. Really, yes. But you have to live a day at a go. This is what we need to do. You have to live a day at a go and you can live by doing this. In fact, most people who get paralyzed by this disease because of crossing the bridges, which sometimes are not even there. This question is going a day at a go. And what do I do today? And if somebody solved the question of what do I do today, they will find that living for... 60 years, as simple as living one day. Maybe I'm too simplistic, wow. but it has worked for me. <laughs> no, no, no. I, actually, the, the real essence of uh, this podcast, of connecting science in its complexity, taking it straight to the citizen, and that's what you have really described very well in your experience. Kim, Thank I'm you. sure you still have something. Yeah. Thanks very much. It's, so. Stephen, the series we're about to, well, we're in the process of recording right now is on chronic conditions and mental health. And the issue of mental health alongside medical treatment is being raised as very, very important. I'd love to know your take on mental health. I think this is something that is, that is important. And myself, at one time, I was depressed. Actually, I was at one moment, I was even suicidal. suicidal. Uh, it is later on I, I discovered that it was because of you. You feel I don't know what to call it, long survivors syndrome or something like that. But I didn't have a name for it. What I know is that it looks as if people who had died were better off than I am. But again, it's difficult to go to a doctor to explain that, especially a person who died and understand mental health. I have a friend recently not a friend, but a, a, a teacher whom I know who, saw, who committed suicide. And this teacher was very good, but 
he was on the other visit, his virus was suppressed. And every time the doctor telling we're doing very well. But he was not happy. Nobody noticed that he was depressed. He left his suicide note saying life was not worth the living. So he went and bought a bottle of liquor and swallowed all his ARVs in a day and, and died. This was severe depression. Mm-hmm. So it's important, I think, to recognize that mental health is as real as the heart problem. Just like we know, uh, or diabetes, or my bone health, because I'm now concerned about bone health, because I know some of the side effects of medicine, but also aging itself. So staying positive, I think one of the issues you always tell people is, and I have kept telling about people is the fo- fo- focusing on something. Because especially currently, a lot of people are finding lack of something to focus on. Uh, when people are even talking about the possibility of a nuclear fallout between Russia and, I mean, you say, what, what is this? What is it? And you are here struggling with a disease. So I think this is something that we need to focus on. Uh, being able to look out for it, if people's behavior changes, somebody who has been attending meetings, that attend, maybe on a WhatsApp group, people who are chatting, now they all of a sudden they have disappeared. One needs to look out, just like you look out for symptoms of another disease. For example, somebody limping, you ask them what, what could be the problem, or somebody is losing weight, so what could be the problem? I think we need to look out for these issues. Uh, and be able to keep them in the bad other than waiting to be treated. First of all, here, in fact, even treating mental health, we have in a whole country in Uganda, I think we have less than 50 psychiatrists. <laughs> 50 is even an overstatement. We, we don't have them in, in and, most, and, and over 80% of them are around Kampala capital. So most of the people who need them. So I think prevention of possibility and I'm already thinking about depression as we grow older, loneliness, and this can lead to all sorts of things. And the long-term effect of HIV on the brain. So I think it's something that we need to look out to, but not only among people living with HIV, all people as they live longer, the challenges of life can be quite, quite what? And, 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 and incidentally, people outside may think you are doing well. One of the things I noticed when, when, when I, when I try to get out, people will say, oh, Stephen, we thank God you are managing. I say, why can't they ask me? <laughs> Nobody is asking me, but they're telling me I'm managing. Nobody is asking me, what is it? How are you getting on? I, for example, I lived alone for 11 years following the death of my wife. And everybody was saying, I'm looking, I'm, I'm doing well. But I was lonely. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wanted to belong. I wanted something to belong. It took a bit of time for me to, and I'm the kind who is outgoing, but there are people who may not be like me. I was lucky that I have many friends. Many people may not be like me. So yeah, I think it's something that we must focus on. Just like we focus on all of these other diseases. Like people watch what you eat. Uh, we should, what do we do to ensure good mental health? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Thank you very much. And, and I think this episode will, will sit very nicely when we're, we're thinking about long-term conditions and chronic conditions and mental health. So thank you. That's mm-hmm. very valuable for us to consider. Any final advice that you would like to give to our, our 
variety of listeners uh, on this podcast? Well, I think I feel privileged that I've been able to, to share my story. Most people don't have the opportunity, but I think whoever has been, been listening, it may not be HIV, it could be anything. Because the body has so many departments, if I may say, but whatever your challenge is, I think the most important thing is to be able to have a support system that people you look forward to, uh, not to be alone. It, it, I think one of the reasons why I've survived is because I had a support system. It may be small, but be family, if it is family, or friends at work, people who are able to, to, to support you. I think that's what I would do. Importance of having social capital, if I may say. You may have a lot of money in the world, but have some social capital you can fall back to. Eventually, of course, life has an end, because no but they value this life alive. But we have, can have good quality life in spite of whatever challenge uh, life throws at you. Thank you. There is absolutely nothing I have to follow that other than to say thank you for sharing your story, your advice, um, and for everything you do for, for the community around you and the world. So thank you for being on our podcast. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly did. Rona, thank you for joining us today also. And uh, Stephen, good luck with everything and have a wonderful 70th birthday. We, uh, Thank you. we wish Thank you, you happy birthday for the future. Thank, Thank you, you, listeners. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs>